I don't know what's happening. That's not me. Was it Franklin Roosevelt who conducted fireside chats with the press or whoever he was talking to because he couldn't stand? He had polio. Well, I, I think we can just have a fireside chat tonight, if you don't mind. I told uh, Jim a couple of months ago the le- subject of my lesson was the Good Samaritan. And we're going to study the Good Samaritan, but the subject of our lesson is studying the Bible. What does studying the Bible <clears throat> mean to you? Is it to read some scripture every day? It is good to practice. It is a good practice to read our Bibles. And the more we read them, the more we learn. But we can never completely understand or appreciate the full meaning of scripture just by reading. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul pointed this out to Timothy when he commanded him in 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, Study, to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's the King James Version. Timothy was commanded to study. The scripture, as he became a preacher... Certainly, reading is a necessary part of studying, but there's so much more. According to Mr. Webster, to study means to consider in detail and give careful examination. It's true that the average person could probably learn what to do to be saved by reading the book of Acts. And reading only. But that part of God's word is very plain and simple and easily understood. Paul refers to it as the milk of the word or the first principles. The new King James translation of 2 Timothy 2.15 goes this way. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God a work worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Note here that the word study is translated as be diligent. Yes, reading is a necessary tool in understanding scripture, but it's only beginning. We might demonstrate it something like this. I'm sure most of you can remember the time when All TV and all movies and all family snapshots were black and white. That's all we had. But we enjoyed them and appreciated them immensely. But then one day along came green grass and yellow butterflies on color TV and blue skies and purple mountains in technicolor movies. And brown eyes and flesh-colored skin and family snapshots. All of a sudden, we came to see and appreciate these images 
so much more than ever before. We saw things that we had never seen before. I'm sure that you all have seen some of Bill and Jen's color photographs. They're so beautiful. The pinks and the reds of the azaleas at Callaway Gardens and the yellow leaves of the aspen trees in the Rocky Mountains are so real that it seems like you could just reach out and touch them. Reading the Bible without further study is like understanding the Scripture in black and white. But when we give diligence to know the Word of God, it turns Scripture into beautiful color. Have you ever been studying or maybe sitting in a Bible class and learned something about a verse which you'd read many times but never fully understood? That verse just turned to black from black and white to color. That happened to me last Sunday morning during Jim's lesson on the barren fig tree. Jesus came to the tree looking for fruit and found nothing but leaves. Then the verse states, For it was not the season for figs. In reading these verses, I didn't understand why Jesus was looking for fruit on a tree that he knew was out of season. Jim explained it, and I understood. He turned my understanding of that scripture from black and white to color. As a matter of fact, Jim does that most of the time. I told him one day that he can get more out of one verse of scripture than any teacher I ever heard. And it's wonderful to know what he teaches us. Let's do some Bible studying. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, if you wish, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and 
whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto the man who fell among the thieves? Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. If someone without much Bible knowledge were to read this parable, even more than once, he never would get the full meaning and appreciation of this parable without further study. He could certainly determine who the good neighbor was, but without further study, he never would get the full understanding because there's so much more that Jesus teaches in this parable. Learning who these men were and how they should have acted would add so much more meaning to this scripture. Who were these men and why does it matter? That's our study tonight. First of all, we have the injured man. He was most likely a Jew because this incident took place in Judah, a land of the Jews. And then next we have the priest. Who was he? Was he someone special? When the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness on their way to Egypt toward Canaan land, God instructed Moses to build a tabernacle. And then immediately following said, Take Aaron that he may minister to me as a priest, and ordered that all succeeding priests were to be his sons, grandsons, and so on down the line. Under the law of Moses, a priest was to be an official minister and worship leader, one who represented the people before God. He conducted various rituals which were necessary to bring about atonement for their sins. As a matter of fact, every sacrifice that the people made to God was offered through the priest. Now, although this office was hereditary, other qualifications had to be met. First of all, he was to be consecrated as a priest. In Exodus chapter 29, beginning in verse 7, Then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them, and you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute. So you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. So this priest who walked by on the other side was a special man. He was consecrated to God. Next, the priest was God's messenger. Malachi 2 and 7 we find, For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and the people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Next, he was to be an example of holiness. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. 
It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between holy and unholy and between clean and unclean. Leviticus 10, 8 through 10. This is the kind of man that this priest who passed by on the other side should have been. You would think that one who represents God ordinarily would be a good neighbor. But this so-called holy man was not. Let's go back to the unlearned man that we mentioned before. He might ask this question. Why is it important for me to know anything about a priest and what a priest is? I found out who the good neighbor was. Well, you and I know the answer to that. Everyone who is a Christian today is a priest. And hopefully, he will want to become one someday. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter says, To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God and the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then down in chapter 3, in verse 3 of chapter 2, he states, If, meaning since, since indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as a living stone rejected indeed by man, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Note the words that Peter uses to describe these people of God. They were the elect. They were chosen by God and precious. Having tasted that the Lord is gracious... A holy priesthood. That's us, folks. How can any Christian hear these words or read this verse and not have chills run up and down his back? These people had become Christians and as such were priests. And we who are Christians today have done the same thing. In 1 Peter 2 and 5, we're told, You also... As living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As priests today, then, we are told to offer up sacrifices which are spiritual. Now, under the old law, sacrifices were dead, bloody, burned with fire, carnal, and temporal. But today in the church, sacrifices are described as living and clean and pure and spiritual and holy and everlasting. But one might ask, what are spiritual sacrifices? And how do we offer them today? And this is a legitimate question. So, 
what is a spiritual sacrifice? First of all, our faith is a sacrifice. In Philippians 2.17, Paul said, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service in your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul here describes the faith of the Philippians as a sacrifice to God. Secondly, our love for God is a spiritual sacrifice. Mark twelve thirty three, And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all of the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Then Paul states in Ephesians 5, 2, And walk in love as Christ so has loved us, and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The phrase sweet-smelling aroma in Scripture refers to the smoke and fumes which ascended from the fire uh, in the act of burning sacrifices under Moses' law, which were sweet both to God and to the worshiper, each one knowing that his sacrifice was accepted, and that was sweet. Our love to God today, love for God today, is a sweet-smelling aroma, both to God and us, an acceptable sacrifice. The fruit of our lips is said to be a, a sacrifice to God. The fruit of our lips is offered in singing and prayer and exhortation to brothers and sisters in Christ and in teaching God's word to others. Our contribution that we lay by and store on the first day of the week is a sacrifice. In Philippians 4 verse 18 we find, Indeed, I have all and abound, Paul is saying. I am full having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma again, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. The church at Philippi had sent a contribution to Paul, which he also called a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice. We must offer our physical bodies as a sacrifice. It is a spiritual sacrifice. In Romans 12, 1, Paul states, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, acceptable to God and holy, which is your reasonable service. Someone has rightly said, the only thing more noble than dying for Christ is to be living for the Lord. We must serve the Lord with all our might as long as we can. And to do this, we must take care of our bodies and keep them holy. Next in the parable, we have the Levite. Who was he? Was he also someone special? In the Old Testament, we find that Jacob, who was the grandson of Abraham, had 12 sons 
who later became the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. Levi was one of these sons, and his descendants were known as Levites. They became special to God while the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. When Moses came down from the mountain with the tablets of stone on which God had written the commandments, he found the people worshiping a golden calf. And immediately after this, in Exodus chapter 32, we find, When Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. Only the Levites came forward when he gave them this bidding. And because of this, they were set apart for special service in and around the tabernacle. This Levite male was not just an ordinary Israelite. At age 25, he also was consecrated to God, <coughs> as well as the priest, and given uh, responsibility to service the tabernacle. Now, you know the tabernacle was a portable structure, and when it, along with all the furniture in it, were moved, the Levites took care of doing this. They also had daily tasks to take care of around the tabernacle. They prepared the showbread, which was prepared and placed in the sanctuary every Sabbath to symbolize God's presence in that place. And they kept the altars clean. Working in and around the tabernacle required then that they be examples of holy living. They were serving the priests and God. This is what the second man who passed by on the other side should have been. So the priest and the Levite, both blood brothers of this Jewish victim lying by the side of the road, should have, without hesitation, been a good neighbor to this man. Then along came a Samaritan who stopped and gave aid to this poor wounded man, gave everything he could. Who was he? And what is significant about the fact that Jesus chose him to be a hero in this parable? Soon after entering the promised land, some members of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh sinned against God by intermarrying with the Canaanites. And because of this, were shunned by the Orthodox Jews. John wrote about this in his book. One day Jesus came to Jacob's well and was thirsty. When a woman of Samaria came to draw water, he asked her for a drink. In John 4, 9, we read then, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from a Samaritan woman? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews and Samaritans normally just didn't get along with each other. So out of these three men who came by this wounded man lying by the side of the road, this half-breed Samaritan, most likely hated by both the priest and the Levite, was the only one to show himself to be a neighbor.
Jesus has been called the master teacher. And in this parable, we can certainly see why. In answering the question of the lawyer as to who is my neighbor, the wisdom of a great teacher is evident. Why did Jesus choose this Samaritan to be a good neighbor who was considered to be just a lowly sinner by these holier-than-thou Jews instead of one who represented righteousness? Why Samaritan? Remember now that Jesus is addressing a devout Jew. He was a lawyer. He knew the law and also was a blood brother to this priest and Levite. He knew what kind of the men these two should have been who passed by on the other side. And he knew that they were generally expected to be good neighbors when sinners are usually not expected to be good neighbors. Jesus was teaching both him and us that when a sinner is shown to be a good neighbor, when the people of God are not, it's a terrible thing. It's a shame and disgrace. And should always produce enough shame in any righteous heart to bring about repentance. And may the Lord help us as Christians to always be good neighbors. Hopefully this study of the parable has brought some color into these verses for you. That just might have only been black and white before. But then the question is asked, how, how do I study? How can I do more than read the Bible because the Bible's all I've got? Well, that's what this lesson's all about. There are several ways that one can study the word of truth without it being expensive. Here are some of them. Listen. What do we call this service on Wednesday night normally? Midweek Bible study. Attend Wednesday night midweek Bible study and, and study. We should attend all of the services of the church. All gospel meetings possible. Lectureships. And you ladies, ladies day. Watch on the television. Good News Today, Gospel Broadcast Network, In Search of the Lord's Way, and others. Read Bible tracts. Subscribe to sound gospel journals such as The Spiritual Sword and many more and read them and investigate them. And last but not least, take a Bible correspondence course. You can learn a lot through the Bible correspondence course, and it's absolutely free. Reading the Bible is good. It's very good. But as the Apostle Paul tells us, we must do more. We must study. We must give diligence to be able to appreciate and understand God's Word. Thank you.
Thank you, Joe. I always look forward to, to Joe's fireside chats <laughs> because they are outstanding, always biblically based, very well prepared, very well thought out and beautifully delivered. And uh, tonight was no exception. Really appreciate that. And oh, how important it is for us to fully appreciate uh, how crucial it is to study the Word of God, not just read the Word of God. Uh, reading, as Joe said, is certainly important, but uh, reading a chapter a day will not keep the devil away. Uh, studying and giving diligence, as Joe has pointed out from Scripture, to present ourselves approved to God, it does take effort, but it's worth all the effort we can expend and more. And I keep I'm reminded of the uh, old gospel preacher, very well-known preacher, and I don't know, remember now which one it was. Uh, might have been H. Leo Bowles, might have been uh, uh, someone else, but one of those great men of the past uh, might have been, I don't know who it was, was asked, uh, or a statement was made, I would, I'd give, I'd, uh, I'd give my life to know what you know about the scripture. And the response was, well, that's what I have given. That's what it has taken. <laughs> uh, in other words, he, uh, he had done an awful lot of uh, living in the word in order to do that. Uh, and uh, I appreciate, and I appreciate Joe's kind words personally, but they were—they're not de deserved. You give me too much credit, brother. But I appreciate, I appreciate your uh, your kind words. Does anyone have any comments or questions? We have just a few minutes, if we choose to take them. Tom.